0: Hello, sweet grievers, Mandy here. Restorative grief is all about creating easy access to healing, no matter where or who you are. That's why I want you to remember that if you want grief support beyond a podcast, then perhaps it's time to consider a one-on-one coaching connection. You don't have to implement all these grief strategies alone, you know? Use the link in the show notes to learn more at mandykpart.com coaching or reach out to me on social media because I'm here for you, okay? Now let's get on to this week's episode. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 125 titled Finding Our Flow of Strength with Andy Kolber. When you have lived through trauma and loss, the sensations of pain and tension are often so commonplace you expect them to continue in every new relationship or situation. My guest this week is author and licensed professional counselor, Andi Kolber, who found a way forward after a completely normalized childhood of trauma and abuse. Her latest book is an integrative approach to human flourishing on the other side of loss and trauma, but she's also just a beautiful human with a heart for you to heal. So let's get into the healing, shall we? Record. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. I'm Mandy, of course, and today I am really excited. I have the honor of bringing one of my favorite authors on the subject of healing and trauma to the show. Um, Andy Colbert is a trauma therapist, author of Try Softer, A Fresh Approach to Move Us from Anxiety, Stress, and Survival Mode into a Life of Connection and Joy. So of course, when I first found your work, that was like, ah, oh, all, mm-hmm. all of the beautiful words. I agree with them. And your most recent book is Strong Like Water, Finding Freedom, Safety, and Compassion to Move Through Hard Things and Experience True Flourishing. So if any of you listening uh, hear all of those favorite words of mine that I use all the time, I think you can understand why her work is so meaningful, but I'm just really excited to get a bigger glimpse into this beautiful, tender-hearted person behind these works. And so without any more waiting, Andi thank you for being on
1: the show. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I
0: agree. And I I mean it when I say you are probably one of my favorite authors on the topic. And i mm. I think that it's because your life experience, your story, and the way that you show up first for yourself and then with invitation, not just psychoeducation to everyone around you is the really big part of how we turn all of this knowledge and all of our life experience into this catalyst moment for transformation and human flourishing so without of course going too
1: far into it tell us a little bit about how you decided
0: oh this is the better
1: way Mm. Mm. well thank you so much for those kind words I mean that means a lot to me to hear and and really is an honor um yeah, it's been just a quite an interesting journey for me. I mean, I think just a big overview. So I'm a, I'm a licensed professional counselor. Um, I've been doing this work gosh, almost 20 years at this point. Um, and you know, part of my story is that I am a survivor of complex trauma from my childhood. And, you know, I think, um, big picture of that is to say, um, you know my experience of trauma was so normal that i didn't know it was trauma to the like the level um i just thought that my family was a little bit different than other peoples and i thought that um yeah i mean there were definitely it wasn't like i didn't know anything um but it was a sense of just having no idea um how normalized my experience like for my own self um that it was so normal that there was never a before for me and so as I got older and I began to have just some sense of like some pain and woundedness, like becoming more clear, like not that it wasn't there, but there was, I had more clarity. Um, I was drawn to wanting to become a counselor. And when I started to do that work, you know, there was part of the invitation there was to do, you know, some of my own therapy and do that type of um going deeper into my story and and so as i became a therapist and like and and was doing that work um it was like these different layers started to come off and one of the first layers is that so much of what i was learning was very much rooted in things like facts and information Um, And I was always really good at, I've always been a pretty articulate person. And I think that sometimes caused people to think that I was doing better than I actually was because I could talk about it. The problem was that that was really disconnected from my body and my pain and my, and so much of my, my trauma. And so really about, I would say about, hmm, let's say 13 years ago. Um I started to have this sense of like, I have got to find a different way other than just talk therapy. And so I started to dive into, you know, kind of specializing in trauma and EMDR and somatic therapy. And that really correlated also with a deepening of my own healing, too. Yeah. And so there's just been this very reciprocal relationship around understanding that um, our change in our healing, always has to go deeper than like a logical cognitive understanding. It's not that those things aren't helpful. It's just that they don't ultimately transform us. And so that has really, I I would say, especially like the last, you know, maybe six or seven years as I've gotten into the writing sphere, um, so much of my focus is figuring out how to um, articulate and invite people into the work in a way that helps them access it from a more embodied way rather than just having it be another fact that they can remember.
0: Everybody take a deep breath. Mm.
1: (laughs) I think that that is,
0: is so necessary because you're absolutely right. If we could think our way through this trauma, we would have. No one is sitting around saying, well, I just kind of like ruminating on these losses and this pain. So I'll just wait it out. And fortunately your experience and your, um, interest in the somatic approach and that really integrative approach has become more widespread too. And so we're seeing this conversation starting, which, I mean, that's the whole thing behind my work as well, is we have to bring an integrative approach into our story. Otherwise we leave part of ourselves behind. We miss part of the healing that's available to us. So take me through what that started as like, what was your first step after deciding, okay, there's more to it. There's more available, but I'm terrified because talk therapy hasn't helped. Maybe I'm thinking of like people I've talked to who say talk therapy doesn't help. Not in isolation. Um, what, where did you take people next? Because EMDR isn't always available to anyone or it's terrifying really. Yeah. So exhausting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly like a whole, <laughs> there's a whole spectrum of, um, I think preparation and resources and, um, even just like attunement required in our journey as we are, are working, you know, as we're kind of on the path towards healing. Um, and so, I think for me what's hard is that there were so many steps. <laughs> and I say that to say like like um one example to say um that was pretty early on um and I and what I always the reason I say it like there are so many steps it's not that that's bad but it was never like there was one thing that was the silver bullet. Sure. That's the thing that i I think I would say. But one of the stories I tell, like in Trisofter at the very beginning, and this was a moment that really did it shift something in me. At the time, I wasn't quite sure to what, but it but it started something is, you know, I was um I had a supervisor because as a therapist, you know, it's sort of like an apprenticeship work where you sort of work under someone um as you get trained, which is wonderful. I think it's a really helpful. Um, part of training to be a therapist because there's so many things that you just, you don't have any idea what to do. <laughs> like, or you're, you heard about it in school. You don't know what that means in the <laughs> therapy room. You need someone to help you find an embodied way to show up. Yeah. And so I had a, th- I had a supervisor named John and John was one of, um I think he was this really regulated kind um, grounded person in my life that i'm so grateful for because at this point i mean this was really before like we're hearing so much about neurobiology and stuff um which i love and i'm so grateful for but at this time that was really not very common even in like i i had to go and find my own training to learn a lot about these concepts Mm -hmm. and so i was really looking back i'm like oh i was pretty like dysregulated at times um And so I was in this time with John in supervision, and he says to me, I'm sharing with him about this case that I feel really overwhelmed by. Like, I can just remember, like, my face is all hot, and I feel this feeling of, like, responsibility, and I'm going to mess it up, and I don't know what to do. And it, it was it was certainly not an easy case, but part of what was influencing my reaction was that I had, I was so parentified as an, as a child and I was really over responsible. And I felt like I was, um, I didn't have the ability to see that like I could be with someone and help them in and like not lose myself in it. Yeah. So I would try really hard. That was part of the way that I coped. And so John says to me in like such a gentle and non-condescending way after I'm explaining kind of this dynamic. And he says, Andy, what would it be like instead of trying so hard? What if you tried softer? And I just remember like, even still, like I just remember like this feeling of like, like a little stunned. Like I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, and I think at that time, especially in a world, in a culture that praises people um, for working so hard, for burning themselves out, for hitting themselves against the wall, for harming themselves. I think especially like for women, women like to be like to sort of um, sacrifice yourself in these really specific relational ways, like all these things. The invitation was for me to not, not stop trying, but to try softer. And so that really, there was a lot of other things that happened, but it began this process in me of wondering, Hmm. what would that be like to do it differently? And in a way, that question got asked of me by John, even probably six years before I really had the resources to implement what that would look like. Um, And so I think in so many ways, that was part of the shift was just becoming aware Yeah, Like I am working so hard and it's leaving me in this place of harm and outside of my window of tolerance into a place of um, burnout. And so it's like all the other pieces, so much of the work that I talk about come from this place of what would I need? What kind of resources, support, safety would I need? to come from a place where I don't have to hurt myself Mm -hmm. to feel this feeling, to be with this person, to turn towards the pain. Um, And so all that to say, that's a long answer to, that was a big shift for me, was someone co-regulating with me and inviting me to see that there might be a different way. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that long answer is necessary because it's indicative of how many steps and how many pieces of the puzzle exist that we have to collect as we start doing this work. And um, one of the things you said reminded me of, I think every client, I'm wondering if you can attest to this too. I think every client I've ever had at some point has said, I'm so tired of being told I'm so strong and Mm. I deal directly with grief. Right. So of course that is such a common response from someone who sees us grieving and, and long-term says, Oh my gosh, you're so strong. I can't imagine. And throws out all the statements of like centering themselves in the experience instead of allowing the griever to say, I'm actually, I am faking the strength. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying so hard to look okay for you and everyone else that Mm -hmm. even the sight needed to say what would be different. How can I open and find some alignment in my nervous system, right? Some curiosity that lets me say, maybe there is a better way. Maybe there is a different path forward. So being able to give such language to it is really that pathway into, well, what kind of strength do I want to embody? Is it that bulldozer? Is it the one that builds the brick walls? Is it the one, because someone who can carry a thousand pounds, what are they doing that for? Is it because they're isolated and have no one else to carry it with them? Sometimes. yeah. Is it because they don't trust anyone? Sometimes, right? And so i that's where I love how um, how your second book comes in so beautifully about starting to learn, well, what is it that's causing you to feel that dysregulated, to feel outside of alignment with your values, with who you are, with that safety mm-hmm. and get you into this place where you can then say, okay, well, even if I'm not entirely ready to be mm. <laughs> facing my, my stuff. Um, Yeah. That quick absorption of, if I just gather all the information, then I'll heal. And it's just, mm. it's so untrue. So um, how did your, uh, th- this is something I think is pretty common too. How did your nervous system, how did you see and notice things starting to shift in yourself instead of just being dysregulated and then shutting down and having to like back, what were some of the, um, signs for you that you could tolerate that dysregulation, that, um, that intensity, even when you're asking big questions so that you could like, Oh, okay. So that actually wasn't, I'm not at a 10 anymore, even though I'm still stressed, I'm at a six. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that. So first I, I love what you shared and and I'd love to talk even a little bit more about grief too. Cause I think yep. that this is such a huge part of all of this work. Um, But, but I think oftentimes, you know, I love sort of getting curious about um, sort of how our thinking helps us, like shows us maybe what nervous system state we might be in. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, what I notice, I, I mean, there's multiple things. I think on a, like a somatic level, I tend to notice just a little bit more of an um, an openness and an ease in my body. Um, like my shoulders, I don't have to work so hard. I carry, I tend to carry a lot in my neck and shoulders. Um, and so when I'm coming from a more regulated place, more grounded place, it's just, it's not like this constant feeling of, oh, I have to relax my shoulders or I, you know, or like my neck hurts so bad because I've been straining to show up in a really specific way. And now my body is exhausted from straining. What I notice is that there is a sense of um, like almost anchoring in my body where it feels really a lot easier to come from a very, like, feels like almost a core strength. It's like the strength comes from a centered place Mm -hmm. um, versus like, a strained place. Um, so, so somatically that's something I often notice and just like a sense of like, there's more time. I, whenever I'm sort of in a sympathetic nervous system state, there doesn't feel like there's ever enough time. Um, and when I'm really stuck in sort of more of like that dorsal sort of dissociative, it feels like either there's so much to do and I can't get it done or it's like, what's the point? It's never going to get done anyway. So just you might as well quit. Um, and so I definitely the shifts, so like there's there's you know, connections, but I think um from the more thinking place, what I notice is that my thoughts shift towards more like, yes, this is hard and I do a lot of hard things. Yeah. Or um, yes, that is a challenge and it would be okay if I worked on it today and tomorrow. Um, like, oh man, I really don't like disappointing people, but also like they're an adult and I think they're going to be okay. You know? Um, so I notice a lot of both and thinking when I'm coming from a more regulated place, I'm also a lot more able to connect with seeing my own like strength and resources, like remembering, Hmm. oh, like I'm capable. Like I I am I'm very capable of quite a few things. And I and that feels true and it feels real. Um so I think I certainly, I mean, I noticed it even then. And I think before, like probably 10 years ago, it wasn't so much that I noticed it automatically. Uh, it took some time. Um, but I what I but it feels like that's a lot of times how shifts begin to happen. Is there like these little minute Like you're like, oh, adjust, adjust, adjust. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I was carrying this 50 pound weight and now I feel like I'm not. And that's really interesting that I'm feeling so much more able to just exist. Yeah. without feeling so weighed down um but it's not to say I don't ever get dysregulated now I certainly do you know so I am very I'm still familiar <laughs> with like when my body is going to those places I just have a lot more language and understanding of like what's happening and be and not just what's happening but then also like what is the resource I need or what or maybe not just the resource, but also like the support, like the person who are the people that make me feel that I can do this hard thing or face this difficult thing. Yeah.
0: I think the like first moment of recognition that both hand is possible, or I'm going to someday potentially be more okay than I am right now is not even as dramatic and exciting as we want it to be. It's as simple as I've survived a lot. Period. Just recognizing not the and I'll be okay or wow, I've done a lot of things and I can just as simple as like I'm still here. Okay. Mm. Like that moment is so sacred. And I think people glaze over that a lot because there's this pressure, whether it's internal or external, to perform or to heal faster or to expedite the process they're going through. And yet they've discounted their own. Hey, you're still here. Holy of all the things you could be doing right now, you're here right now. And you're actually thinking about your survival and your wellness. And that to me is that little like gentle nudge towards those inner parts that just have been waiting to be acknowledged. Like I'm also still here. I'm also still capable. Don't leave me behind, integrate me, (laughs) like invite me forward. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Something you said about um, there's time for this made me think about what in my own grief journey I've been doing lately to remember there's time for all of the things that I need and want no matter what how extravagant and life-giving or little and meaningful they are and the way I started practicing it was getting back into baking bread literally this morning I threw I was rushing to get to this call because I had a loaf of bread that needed to go in And my faithful husband is out there learning how to finish it in the oven for me. (laughs) Then for some reason, I thought I have time to start a second loaf because I'm not in a hurry. Mm -hmm. I'm going to disappoint Andy if I'm a minute late, which I wasn't because there's time for things. Right. But I'm also Mm -hmm. not feeling like, what was I thinking? I was thinking this sounds joyful and that's what I want in my life. And I'm going to start a busy day with something really joyful. I started a second loaf. And I think the the time that comes out of something is simple not just making time to do the thing but the the object lessons within baking bread right you have to take you can't just sit down and do it it's it's hours and hours of waiting and resting and learning to rise and learning to read the situation and um i'm i'm curious like how in your life did you start deciding there's time for this because that's not something i often hear people articulate I hear them say, yeah. well, this week we'll do this. And next week we'll do that. And I'm like, why is there a next week?
1: <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Like, can we just exist here and now and stay yeah. present for a moment?
1: Yeah, no, I think for me, <clears throat> I mean, certainly when I think about myself growing up, um, you know, I went from, um, my experience was just like, everything was so rigid um, from like, like that's how I survived like a really chaotic um, home and lack of care. And, um, and then there was like the other side that I think of too, like where it's like dissociation and things like that. But often like if I was in a place where I was doing something, it was from a place of, of a lot of strain. It was, it was everything I had. It was all those things. And so in my own healing journey, which has included a lot of grief, not just from like complex trauma, but losing a parent who was like my main abuser um, and the complexity of that, um, I think of it like time, like like a kindness, like like the sense of um, that there is not a rush to, to like have to be over it or feel it in a certain period of time or all those things there is a, it's like a kindness to all, to the parts of myself that are still hurting that are grieving. Um, And it feels to me like, um, you know, I think that this like one of the themes that I talk a lot about in my writing is compassion and, and this idea of what does it look like to turn with compassion towards ourselves and offering And I know this is not everybody's journey with grief, but I think even if you had, if you're grieving someone that you had a good relationship, just by living in a culture that requires us to pretend like we're over things or that we have to be stronger. Like I I think of it like a a certain kind of strength, um, you know, that, which is something I unpack a lot in Strong Like Water that um, there's this idea that not feeling is strong, which is ultimately like so deeply the opposite of what's really true. Um, and, and so the enough time it's almost like, Hey, here's a gigantic container, fill it with whatever you want. Yeah. And that in doing that, there is a, there is an invitation to unfolding and the more pain we carry, the more trauma, the more grief, the more we'll likely have to unfold. And we, and it's so um, good to be able to have all the space you need to let it be as complex, to let it take the time that it takes, to let it get really messy, to allow it to be what it's going to be. And not to say that we don't, I, I'm a big advocate for things like pacing yourself and things like learning resources to sort of have choices in your journey so that you feel like it's not in so many ways, trauma, like takes away your choice. So I love helping people to understand where they do have agency, so that they can be sort of change the posture from it's happening to me to the sort of like, what are my choices within this thing? Um, So it regains some of that agency, even though we can't change the reality of what's happened. Um, And so all of that, you know, for me in my life has been, really granular like it's it's like I think this internal posture of like like things like poetry mm-hmm. instead of feeling like oh man you have to read this whole long book on whatever not that that's bad but like if my nervous system's like I'm exhausted my body's like I'm exhausted and I'm done I can't really carry anything else yeah and then I just read a piece of poetry that's like says more than a th- you know 10,000 words could say Like to me, that feels like a slow, like there's enough time. Like it just feels like it's okay. The thing that you thought you needed may not be the thing you need. It may be the attention to the ways that our body are saying, I'm already caring too much. Please make enough space for that. And I think there are so many different ways to make that space. You know, whether that's making bread or it's just being with someone who is like allows you to be in what you're feeling or looking at a piece of art or being outside without technology and just literally hearing the birds chirping. Like like there are so many ways for us to make the space, but I think we're socialized to think that is unproductive and that we are, you know, wasting our time and that we're behind and that we're all these things. And the paradox is, is that when we learn to be with
0: mm-hmm.
1: or is, for what, for however long that takes, like that is so often the kindness that is needed for that pain to begin to metabolize at whatever pace it needs to.
0: Andy, I didn't ask you to read my mail this month, but apparently you have. I, it's funny because I was just reflecting on it's been seven years since my mom died and January is historically the worst month for me anyway. That's the month she died. In 2020, I had a miscarriage. I was being slandered. I was having a job loss situation. And there was so much going on. So January is always so loaded. Plus, it's the pressure of everything you just talked about, plus improve yourself, be better, do more, exist bigger. Um, and I've I love a good challenge, but January has been an embodied challenge for me for years. So this month I was very like, okay, well, I want to move tenderly and very intentionally through each day of January. And on the day itself of her anniversary is two days before my grandfather's death anniversary. So there's a lot going on. And I thought, let me just see what I can be this month instead of what I can do. The escapism was 20 novels this month. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I got to the end of one, this last week that wrecked me. Like I was, I loved the characters. I loved the story. I wanted everything beautiful for them. And it was a, it's part of a series. And so it was a cliffhanger. And I'm like, I am unwell. Oh, you know what? I just escaped for a month. Not like I was present for a lot of it, but I read really fast. Mm. And at the same time, all of this continuing education, I'm trying to get done before April is on the back of my mind. And I just thought, well, I could go now that I've finished that novel and I need to stop and like, just love the characters for a minute. I could go and work on my CE. Let me go jump into some observations of somatics. Um, and instead I did exactly what you just said. I was like, no, that's actually too much. Let me go pick up this poetry book. I read like one or two and I thought, okay, it's not quite it. I, I then turned on some music and I just, released everything. Like this sob Mm -hmm. came out of me and I thought, okay, Mm -hmm. there is time for me to just stop learning and stop flooding my brain with even stories that are fun Mm -hmm. and come to this place of remembering. I can pace myself to my own standard. I don't have, even if I do have someone saying, when will you be done? What's your, like, when can I expect our lives to go back to normal? even if I had that person, it's not about them. That's their own dysregulation showing up and and not being able to make space for me. And so it was, it, I appreciate you saying all of that because I can say it to myself, but I feel like other people saying the same exact thing is really, really crucial, right? Like we were talking earlier, this conversation is becoming more widespread because there's this collective understanding that we've tried talk therapy in isolation for so long Um, And now we are recognizing the, this is my interpretation of it, the, the value of the collective wellness by settling into the impact of our bodies and how Mm -hmm. they are impacted by grief and how we relate to other people through our bodies. It's why nonverbal communication is so significant, right? When we Mm -hmm. haven't been given good experience of attunement with others, we misread and then we go back into isolation. So, um, you wanted to go back and talk about grief. So let's do it. I've got a million directions we could go. What, what, what is your thought on how someone can begin Mm. to soften into their grief? When, when their experience has been such a cognitive process, like Mm. we, you know, I break things down and say like body, mind, heart, and spirit, it's all part of the whole, you can isolate them if you want to, but you've done that for a while and it hasn't worked. How can you begin to pull people back in? Like, where would you, who someone comes in and says like, I'm in this stage of the grief process, but okay, that's cute. Um, It's not, (laughs) it's not holistic enough to say where you're actually starting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, The first thing that I would say, and this is probably something you've already, you already talk about, but I think it's just something I like to start with is saying, you know, grief is just such a natural part of being human. Yeah. Like grief is not something that we fix. Right. Grief is part of the process required to be able to metabolize pain yeah and any really any pain to some extent requires there's a certain level of of grief that comes um and so i think that i say that because i think sometimes people especially in our culture i think grief can be thought of as the problem right and i would say that grief is really, I mean, this is taken from other folks, not taken, but sort of riffing, riffing off of other quotes, but just like grief is sort of the imprint of love or those things that we were meant for love, right? So like in my case, having a parent who was an abuser, part of my grief has been what not only did happen, what didn't, but what also what didn't happen yeah. in my life. And both sides of those, to some extent, are actually about love. Because I was worthy of that love and I didn't get it. Yep. And that's worthy of grief. And then the way I was harmed is also worthy of the grief, right? But what's so tricky, depending on our experiences, is that one, we live in a culture that doesn't really... really socializes people not to grieve, right? We are sort of praised when we don't grieve. We are um, looked at as quote unquote strong. We are seen as being tougher. Um, There are sort of these like social belonging pieces that whether people are conscious of it or not, almost everyone has internalized. And so the problem with that is, Even if the grief is not necessarily, has not necessarily been a traumatic grief, um, if we don't feel like we're, it's okay to grieve, it's almost like the process that needs to happen gets frozen. And when it gets frozen, I think one of the ways we might cope with that is, is by going cognitive, right? Like, just like what you're saying. So we're, we're thinking about the feelings. We're not feeling the feelings. And that, again, that's sometimes a way that people adapt because when we've been taught that feelings are bad or that you won't be able to handle it or you've never been supported in feeling your feelings, um, intuitively and sort of uh, even subconsciously, that will feel dangerous to us to be able to to get into the work needed that um, may be required for there to be that processing. And so I think often, partly is I would encourage folks to be curious about their story and like what they've learned about feeling and learned about grief. You know, because I think sometimes if you're a person who like, let's say you grew up in a family and you've never were allowed to feel, and it was sort of shamed to feel, it makes so much sense that grief would feel like, this black hole that you'll never like you know what I mean like it feels like where do I even begin and I think that's where it's sort of helpful to begin by not that we there are it's not that we can control grief or it's not that we can like sort of make it like this um you know, bite-sized thing. Like sometimes grief is sort of its own animal too. So I, I like acknowledge that, but I think that there are ways that we can begin to find, like to get curious about where and when do we feel safe enough to access some emotion? Um, what people cause us to feel, I love that you use the language of softening into the grief. What would it be like to give yourself permission to be with it even just for a little while? Yeah. like what would what, what if that what if that was an experiment like an experiment almost yeah. to begin to just just to see um because I think so often that the truth is is that that feels really intimidating yeah to dive into the deep end when you're like listen nobody taught me how to swim yeah and you want me to dive into the deep end like somebody give me a floaty or something yeah. you know like anything. Um, And so I think that, you know, learning about grief as like, A, that it's normal. Mm -hmm. It's part of the human condition. It's not, there's, there's no pathology to grief. In fact, I love the quote uh, by Dr. Dr. Gabor Mate talks about like, in many ways, the opposite of trauma is genuine grieving. So Mm -hmm. often in the work I do in trauma work, we are actually trying to get to the point where someone is able to feel safe enough working through the trauma so they can grieve. Yeah. And so it's not to say that the grieving is the easy, it's not that it's easy, but there is something in our bodies where we are designed. Like there is important medicine yeah. in the process of the grief. Yeah. And when we don't get to access the medicine, Um, it's not to say that that will ever be easy, but there's something there that we really need. Yeah. That's something that
0: brought to mind just now. I have to tell people kind of similar to what you just said when they sit down or even when they're just listening, the idea that all trauma has grief, but not all grief has trauma. Like it's, it's so natural to grieve. It's the other side of life. Like I like to say, it's two sides of the same coin, grief and life. They're there. You'll flip back and forth. I promise. Um, Mm. How do you empower yourself to be confident when the coin flips, you are not necessarily going to stay in that place forever. Mm. You will learn in whether it's isolation (laughs) or in relationship, how to close the box again Mm. and the empowerment comes from recognizing you have autonomy to decide when the lid comes off the box and when it goes back on. I was talking with someone yesterday who, as they were speaking, said, "Um, you're taking the box and you're taking the lid off. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I don't have to, this is just me asking questions. So if it's too much, put the lid back on, literally visualize yourself taking the box from my hands and putting the lid on it because I'm not the one that chooses when we start to wade into these uh, things that you've kept hidden away, that's all up to you. And that approach of, I love the scientific mind experiment language. I say it all the time. It's so helpful because it allows us to like almost become playful, right? When we were kids and we wanted to learn how to make a pie, we started with mud in the backyard. Mm -hmm. We experimented with little things that changed the way we perceived the world around us. And I think that that's, One of the power pieces in grief work that we can obtain is this willingness to explore what is actually possible for us to be, who we can become without just saying, well, we've survived all of these things. And so now we're strong people. Well, well, maybe (laughs) (laughs) we're strong. Like you said, and I'd love for you to break this down too. Like we're strong in certain ways, but What does true strength look like? And is it something that is this individualized? I mean, to some degree, yeah, of course it is. But um, are there markers that we as individuals can be looking for that show us we've moved from that tight muscle, um, tension-based strength into a true strength that allows that sense of self to really begin to flourish?
1: Yeah. 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 So one of the things, so in Strong Like Water, um, part of what I wanted to do in that book is to really, I would say, expand our definition of strength. Mm. And the reason I say it like that is because, you know, so part of my own story is I was always viewed, I've always sort of been viewed as the strong one. I've always been like the person that um, people don't worry about, or that could get things done, or was such a hard worker, or was the good kid, or all these things. And what was so painful about that is that at the same time, some of those things were praised. It meant that the pain that needed attended, like attending Mm -hmm. could never get the attention because it was so um, guarded and necessarily so like it needed to be that way for me to be able to survive my childhood. Um, So it's like, there's the both ends. And so in Strong Like Water, what I explore is that I, I talk about it through the lens of what I call the flow of strength. And I sort of define three types of strength. And, and the first one is what I call situational strength. And situational strength is I think of as a sort of a life or death energy. It's the, it's the energy, it's the kind of strength that most of us think about when we talk about strength, like exactly what you and I are saying. It's like, showing up no matter what it's whether that means dissociating, whether that means pushing yourself into total fight mode flight mode, over accommodating it's giving beyond your limits mm. um, or doing anything beyond your limits in part because or sometimes in total because we feel like there is a life or death threat and that's based off of a perception too like it it, it may not look that way to other people, but if our body, Perceives the experience is life or death in the sense of like, we will no longer belong. We won't have a home to go home to. We, whatever that means, there's lots of context dependent things. So, a lot of people, in my opinion, live mostly out of situational strength when they're showing up in a way where they have to do something hard. It's not that situational strength is bad. Sometimes we need situational strength. Like for me personally, I am deeply grateful for my situational strength. It allowed me to survive really difficult, hard things Mm -hmm. in my life. And what I also know is, is that our bodies are finite and we, if like, it's not sustainable to live out of situational strength, that kind of, I think of it like a high octane fuel. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's the kind where you only have so much. So it's sort of like if you're having to live that way in your everyday life, mm-hmm. you are going to go into the negative, sort of, you know, like your body is going to feel the impact of that harm. However, I think when our body, along that flow of strength, um, when we begin to have enough, um, I call them compassionate resources, but really what is meant by that is that when our body has enough cues of safety and support, we neurobiologically, our neuroception um, picks up that there's enough safety that we begin to move into sort of more of our nervous system. Like for example, our prefrontal cortex begins to come online. And when that happens, we are able to have more of that both and kind of thinking. We're able to begin to have a little bit more of higher level sort of thought and resourcing within our own body. And so instead of being like, I am my pain, we might feel like I am experiencing pain and I am myself. Like I am aware that this is painful and also I have other choices and that, that shift sounds small, but it's, it's huge. It's right.
0: I mean. The prefrontal cortex part alone isn't like 25 years old before it's fully developed in people. Like,
1: yeah, it may that, even be like 27. It's, yeah, like, it's, yeah, it's totally. totally, that's why and it's such a big deal. W- and when it's offline, it's very significant because mm-hmm. essentially we are fully living from our survival brain and the more harm that survival brain is carrying the unresolved pain and trauma and grief, yeah. the more like sort of at the surface that will be. Yeah. So when that prefrontal cortex cortex is offline, that situational strength can come out in a lot of different ways, sometimes in ways that are really out of alignment with how we want to live,
0: yeah. which
1: can be really tricky, you know? Yeah. So I call that center place in the flow of strength. I call that transitional strength. Um, and it's like this place where we're beginning to learn to be with our pain. Um, it's like we're able to attend to our pain, we're able to We have a little bit more choice because we are not over-identified with the pain. Um, And then I would say as we move along that flow of strength and as we gain, you know, sort of more resources and more support, um, I think intuitively our body begins to be able to process some of whatever is causing us to have to have some activation. And as we metabolize that, we move towards an integrated strength. And so that's the furthest along that flow of strength. And, and I think of this like, you know, you could, for some people, you could be in situational strength, transitional strength, and integrated strength within 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, because this in many ways to me is the spectrum of being human. Ultimately, I think this is what it means to process pain. Yeah. And it's, it's really meant to be fluid. Um, what happens for a lot of people is that they don't have the resources and safety they need and they get stuck in situational strength and their body carries that pain and it and there's a very high cost to being stuck there. Um, and so with that integrated strength, I think one of the things that's really beautiful is like, it's almost like we learn, um, we begin to internalize what it feels like to move through pain, to grieve. And it's sort of like this upward spiral too, where once like, let's say you do you process one thing and you intuitively begin to know like that's what it feels like when I process something. And now when you go back, whenever you get back on that spectrum and there's activation, your body carries that resource now. And what's cool is that that is something that will likely end up supporting you in the future because you know that you can process pain. Um, and so I just, I love this picture of it. And to me, this is what I would call this really expansive version of, of strength. And it's not that anyone is, I actually don't think that any one of these strengths are the best strength. I think ultimately it's more about, is the strength a match for what we are experiencing? So if we are in a life or death situation, honestly, some situational strength is, is likely really important. Yeah. Um, but when we are with like people that love us and care about us, situational strength may be a profound mismatch for what we're needing. Um, and so I just, I, it's been, it's been a fun idea to sort of unpack and talk about because I think that, um, I, one of my deep hopes is to give language and really to give honor, to to people who've survived really hard things to give trauma survivors honor and to say, you know what, your body is not trying to like be difficult. Your body is trying to help you survive. Yeah. And there is a difference. Mm. And when we can gain that, even if it's, sometimes we aren't able to access compassion right away, but like if we can even gain respect for all the ways our bodies are constantly adapting and working to keep us safe. um, It can be a really beautiful starting place to sort of reimagine what we experience in our bodies as we grieve, as we process pain, as we process trauma. Yeah.
0: I like to tell people, Hey, at some point you decided that your body and your humanity wasn't worthy of dignity anymore. And today we're going to agree the opposite. We're going to restore your belief in your own dignity because that's, that's it, right? When we are so accustomed to being dismissed or abused or left behind, or even just discredited in our experience of ourselves, like we have these aha moments and someone's like, that's ridiculous. That dignity that we inherently have as humans and as individuals is just chipped away at. And I think that when we reflect on, oh, I am deserving of dignity." then yeah, my anger makes a lot of sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. this hypervigilant response when people are just trying to get to know me and I tell them to, you know, walk away or I yell at them and resp- like, that starts to make a lot more sense and I can soften into a more curious place because like as parents, we try really hard to be curious about our kids, especially if we've survived things. Uh, we try to not traumatize further and and, and pass it mm-hmm. along. But because we are still learning how to move out of hypervigilance and how to stop self-protecting against non-threats, right? That that uh, invitation into just acknowledgement of our val- of validity as a human being and that worthiness we have. Yeah, I feel like that's like this little tugboat on your flow of of strength. <laughs> like you can come <laughs> further, you can come into this integrative space, it's gonna be okay. And And when you step out of it, I love the idea of, right. We'll spiral back to it. I've said that in the past, um, because we feel like spiraling feels negative inherently like Mm -hmm. the language. Oh, I'm spiraling. Um, okay. But it's not a downward spiral. What if you're just back on familiar land and you've already been here before. So you literally have a map. Look at Mm -hmm. the map. What does the map say? The map says too much chaos. Okay. Maybe sit down and stop trying to walk. Then maybe it's time mm-hmm. to just rest in your yeah. um, awareness that something is a little chaotic, but um. yeah. And you amazing. have a guided workbook coming out soon with yes. your strong like water. Tell us about it because that's, I think like the natural perfect marriage to a <laughs> book that allows us to open up then move yeah. into what you can do with it.
1: Mm, well, yeah, thank, well, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, um, I have, it's called Strong Like Water Guided Journey. It's coming out March 26th. Um, and it is a companion book to, to Strong Like Water. And, you know, my, my goal with all of my work, um, but particularly with my companion books, is to really emphasize sort of experiential work because I so value um, experiential knowledge that it's not that the cognitive knowledge doesn't matter, but in a way it's like a way to practice um, this this cognitive knowledge in a more embodied way. And so um, it's really a deepening of, of so much of even what we've talked about here of really, my goal in, in so many of these things is to sort of say, I hope that the reader feels this invitation to sort of like figure out how do I make this work even more my own? How do I attune it to my own experience so that it can be as helpful and as much of a resource as possible? So, and I also have some um, videos that go along with that. Folks can find that um, on my website. So I'm really excited about it. And I just really am passionate about people having the resources that they need. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm excited to get a copy of the journey book because I am not... Completed. I'm in process too, just like the rest of us. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of, you know, the people doing this work vocally and putting it out there in the world and putting them in a place where they also may not feel like, oh, cool. So I'm not allowed to be soft and have issues, and and Mm. also be still grieving. So I appreciate who you are and the work that you've created and the way that you have allowed your own story to not only metabolize, but to go out and create wholeness opportunities for other people. Because I mean, if we weren't doing this work, we we would just be running around continuing to injure each other. And that's,
1: that's yeah. just not so
0: fun. It's just really, yeah,
1: not. no, I love that. And thank you for saying it. And yeah, it's really just the invitation to know, like we are valuable as we are not because we're finished. Yeah, And I think that is just, you know, one of those things that continue to come up that we, you know, get socialized into believing that. And I just, it's not the truth that it really is the invitation because we are already so valuable and loved. We get to do this work. Yeah. So
0: good. We could talk for hours. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to see your new work and connect again soon.
1: Yes. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 125 of Restorative Grief. This entire conversation is an invite into remembering your story and yourself and your humanity with kindness. What you have carried for your lifetime does not have to be brought for the future, but there is safety available to unpack and process both your traumas and the insight you deserve for the grief work too. I love Andy's last thought on how experiential grief and trauma work allow us to begin healing so differently. So if you're new to her work, I highly recommend both of her books and workbooks. You can also snag the podcast workbook for this month, which will include a few pages on what we discussed here today. The monthly companion workbooks I share are created for the same purpose, creating an experiential approach to the cognitive process of listening to a podcast. So if you've not tried one out, maybe this is a good time to do it. And if this is your first time listening to restorative grief, welcome. This year, we are chasing some big ideas and opportunities to create collective healing as well as individual healing. So I hope you'll subscribe to the show and stick around. If you like this episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with a friend who may also need a reminder of how possible it is to heal you know, that feeling you get when someone sends you a little like check in and you're like, oh my gosh, they see me. That's what sharing an episode like this could do. So if that is something important to you, I am pretty sure it's important to other people too. And as always, one last thing before we go, please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.